Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. How do we learn to let go of things that don't matter? Well, on today's program with Dr. Newfeld, we'll continue in our current series, The Fellowship of the Gospel. So turn with me now to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 8, as we answer this all-important question. All of us go through life in which sometimes we make mountains out of molehills, meaning we value things highly that really don't matter that much at all. In extreme cases, that's the story of the hoarder, who can't let go of old, worn-out newspapers and trinkets from years ago that he can't seem to throw away. In less extreme cases, well, we might find it difficult to throw away something that has an emotional attachment in our lives. I have a memory like that. When my dad passed away, I inherited his old toolbox, big, long wooden box painted red with a metal pipe on the top for a handle. It was heavy and ugly, and it used a great deal of space. But I remember it from my childhood, and I remember my dad coming home with it and carrying it. It took me over a year after dad's death to finally throw that thing out. It was something that I loved, and throwing that wrecked old box away was one of the hardest things I've ever done felt like I was throwing my dad away. Now, you might be able to identify with something like that in your life. But sometimes we cling to things that are very bad for us. Years ago, I had a conversation with a man who was contemplating giving up smoking. He was a truck driver, and he had a given route, and he drove that route every single day. And every day, as he rounded a corner and started up a hill, he had a habit. He'd light a cigarette. It was a familiar and comforting habit, and even though he knew that the cigarettes were killing him, he told me that the hardest part was not the nicotine withdrawal at all, but that he deeply felt the loss of that one time in every day when that well-loved habit would no longer be a piece of his life. He went through a process of mourning, kind of like a love that was taken away from him that he would never find return to him. He grieved. How many of you know that the examples that I'm giving us are all examples of what the Bible calls the flesh? Now, the word flesh actually can hold a wide variety of meanings. It isn't necessarily a bad word. For instance, in 1 Timothy 3.16, we're told that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, which simply means that Jesus appeared to us as fully human. You see, flesh sometimes means no more than our essential humanity. But as you and I know, the term flesh is often used to describe our lower or sinful nature, whereby we inherently rebel against God. In this sense, flesh is like a repeated habitual pattern that overrules our own will. Let me see if I can describe that. Not long ago, we suffered a power outage in our area, and we were without electrical power for about two days. And I did a funny thing. Every time I walked through a door, I would turn on the light switch. You know, I laughed at myself because I knew we had no power, but I couldn't stop myself from doing it. I had an ingrained habitual pattern that's in my flesh that simply takes over and performs actions without my will being involved. See, when it comes to the sinful patterns and impulses we were born with, this is especially seen. Paul describes that pattern in Romans 7, 18 to 20. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
See, I hope you see that an action that is not an action of my will, but controls my will so that I perform things out of habitual patterns that master my behavior, and all of that is called the flesh. Now, when we last left off with our study of Philippians, we heard Paul warning this church that very soon now, a group of false teachers called the Judaizers were going to show up and teach doctrines that, if listened to, would destroy their faith. These people would teach believers that unless men among them would submit to the Jewish rite of circumcision, they would not be saved from their sin. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul, contrasting these teachers' attitudes to his own, says, We put no confidence in the flesh. Or I suppose another way of saying that is, we don't trust any activity of the flesh even for an instant. Now, I know this is a play on meaning. On the one hand, the Judaizers wanted to circumcise the flesh, that is, make cuts on the human body. But that leads Paul to warn against those who wanted you to trust in something that is done to the flesh. If you trust in the flesh, says Paul, you're trusting in something that is outside of Christ. You're trusting in something you do, something you can change, something you can accomplish. You'll be valuing something that doesn't matter at all. In fact, you will develop a pattern of valuing something that's actually killing you. Now, as we've noticed, all of us have established patterns within us in which reliance on our achievements will feel comforting and precious and satisfying, like my trucker friend with his cigarettes, but this will lead to spiritual death. And then Paul illustrates this in his own life. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, before we look at the details, can you see in broad terms what Paul is telling us? He says in verse 4, I have every reason to put confidence in the flesh. And then he tells us that he has seven reasons to be confident in the flesh. Notice the first four reasons. First, his circumcision. Now, if we read that text literally from the Greek, it would read, with respect to circumcision, an eight-day one. And that means that his parents had him circumcised in compliance to the rules of Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12. Now, that, of course, meant that Paul was not a Jewish convert or a proselyte from paganism. He was no late-in-life convert. He was an eight-dayer, a Jew who was an insider, the real thing. Second, Paul says, I'm of the people of Israel. That is, he reinforces his first point. I am pure-blooded. And then third, he can trace his ancestral line to the tribe of Benjamin. And fourth, he is Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning that he is fluent in both Hebrew and Aramaic. Some Jews in his day were not. Now, this is his religious heritage, and most of his countrymen thought this was incredibly important. Credentials mattered, and his credentials were impeccable before he even began to act as a Jew. But then he adds three more reasons why he might put confidence in the flesh. And these were not the things he was born with, but rather the things he has accomplished, the things he has achieved. He was a Pharisee, no small feat. You know, among the Jewish people, the Pharisees were greatly admired by many. They had mastered the law in a way that no one else had, and they were teachers in Israel. 
Paul, through rigorous scholarship, had become one of their elite group, even educated under the prestigious teacher Gamaliel, who was the leading authority in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Secondly, he had led the way to persecuting the church. Now, we might not think that was a great feat, but in Paul's day, well, it was. It meant he was zealous for keeping the religion of Israel pure. And thirdly, well, here's the one that's puzzled many Bible teachers. Paul claims that under the law, he was blameless. You know, it's important to understand what Paul is saying. He's not saying he was sinless. Rather, he is saying that when it came to outward conformity to the law, he actually didn't fail. He never outwardly, and that's the key, he never outwardly disobeyed any of the Ten Commandments. Everything from taking the sacred name in vain to Sabbath to adultery to honoring father and mother, well, he did it all. Added to that were the other 613 laws from the Torah. He says he kept those. He also kept all the Mosaic purity laws. He was faithful in temple rituals. It meant he had mastered a spiritual discipline. And in the Jewish community, his star was on the rise. Now, notice back in verse 4 that Paul calls all of this confidence in the flesh. He means he has become confident in both his religious heritage and in his external accomplishments. And, says Paul, all of this was leading me somewhere, but not to the place I thought. Yes, it was leading him to becoming one of the most respected leaders in the ancient Jewish world, and it led him to delight in the praises of men. The flesh loves human accolades. It, by its very nature, responds well when all men speak well of it. And that's not necessarily bad in and of itself. Leading a life which is praiseworthy is of some advantage, and the Bible even commends some of this. But the flesh finds this to be a kind of a God we cannot live without. Like my father's wooden toolbox, it's something we can't throw out. When push comes to shove, like the hoarder, the accolades of men become more important than life itself, even more important than God. Indeed, our accomplishments become our substitute for God, in which we would gladly jettison God, but not these things. And when we come back, we'll see why Paul demands, for the sake of our souls, that we let go of all the things that don't matter. As Christians, all of us struggle with our flesh, the part of our humanity that leads us into sin and rebellion against God. Paul's words to the church in Philippi are not only revealing about his own personal story, but also a great insight into the dangers of putting confidence in the flesh instead of Christ. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will give us more relevant insights into how we must let go of the things that hinder our walk with God. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube a new, inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. 
To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca. As Paul shared with the Philippians, the things in his life that at one time ultimately mattered to him, he was warning that church of a great spiritual danger. Very soon now, a danger much greater than the danger of the persecution from the pagan Gentile world was about to come to the Philippian church. The Judaizers would demand that they be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul thought that if they submitted to this, they were in fact relying on the flesh. That is, they would rely on something, either that a human being has done to them or something that they had accomplished themselves. And whenever they did that, they would stop relying on Christ. The greatest problem of relying on the flesh is that it feels so overwhelmingly satisfying and rewarding and good. The flesh rewards those who rely on it with an inner pleasure that is habit-forming. And so Paul describes his own pre-Christian experience. He, much more than they, had every reason to want to rely on human accomplishments over the finished work of Christ. Let's stop for a while and make application. It may surprise you to think that Christians also have a list that looks surprisingly like Paul's list of human accomplishments in Judaism. For us, it can be being born into a Christian home with a Christian culture. I went to church from birth to the present. I was in Sunday school class all my growing up years. I was baptized at the appropriate age and even became a leader in my church. But perhaps those examples are too easy. Let me try another one which requires some thought. You know, for some of us, and it may shock you to hear me say it, but the way we tell our testimony makes it sound like an exercise of putting confidence in the flesh. Here's what it might sound like. When I was 5 or 15 or 25, I made a personal decision to invite Jesus into my life. Now, I hope you heard that. I, I decided. I made the invitation. I changed my life. And so for you, if that's your story, the real issue is not confidence in Christ, but confidence in the decision you've made. So really, it's about you and what you decided and not about Christ and his saving power. So when you're asked, how is it you came to believe, you don't say, well, God had mercy on me. Rather, you say, I made a decision. You know, in church history, that was called the heresy of Pelagianism. You know, Pelagius was a false teacher in the 400s who taught that human beings were not innately sinful. The idea of being counted sinful in Adam was repugnant to Pelagius. He believed that we were good by nature. But after Pelagius, a new view was formed, sometimes called semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism agrees with the Bible that human beings are born into sin, but somehow not everything in us is sinful. Essentially, semi-Pelagianism believes that the human will or the human power to choose has in some miraculous fashion been spared from corruption. And so some have this belief in themselves that I chose to be a Christian, and in that I have done something praiseworthy. I have contributed to my own salvation, and this inspires a confidence in the flesh. Now, I know some of my hearers will say, that sounds like, well, Calvinism. Well, no, it doesn't. Both John Calvin and Jacob Arminius agreed on this, along with most other Bible teachers throughout history, that the human will cannot contribute to our own salvation. As Paul says in Romans 3 verse 11, no one seeks God, no one. 
That's the curse of Adam's fall into sin. The will finds God objectionable. And unless the Holy Spirit frees our will from the bondage of sinful inclination, we will not, indeed we cannot, choose for God. Now, I don't have time to explain all of that, only to say this is but one contemporary example where we have put confidence in the flesh rather than in the Spirit of God. And this confidence in the flesh is so deeply rooted in the human heart. Whether that confidence is in the sacraments, or your own decision-making process, or your own works of righteousness, or your own good upbringing, all that leads away from God. But like my father's old toolbox, we can't get ourselves to throw this away. Now let's read verses 7 to 8. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, one Bible teacher calls verses 7 and 8 Paul's accounting reversal. You know, there was a time when he thought that his greatest spiritual wealth lay in the things of the flesh. Now he said, I count that this was all nothing more than a pile of trash. Like the hoarder, his eyes are open to the fact that he has spent a lifetime collecting useless junk. This was a wasted life. And then, says Paul, I have come to see that I have but one asset, one thing upon which all my spiritual wealth rests, and that is Christ. He now sees what he was incapable of seeing before. Christ alone is the only thing of value in his life. And that's why Paul was able to walk away from Judaism and the advancement it might have brought him. It presented him with no value. Let's apply this. How do we choose the place of eternal and spiritual wealth? Let's review four things we can do. First, put all the reasons you have to be spiritually proud and place them into your loss column. All the spiritual advantages that you have by birth or by accomplishment or by the things you did, think of them as a great big debit. You know, for me, that might be all the people I've taught and who have told me I've changed their life. God says to me, put that into your debit column. It's spiritually dangerous for you to glory in that. All of us need to ask the Lord for insight into that. Here's the next step. Put everything outside of Christ into your loss column. Is there something today that you glory in or that you boast in outside of Christ? It's a debit. Put it there. That includes your education, your family, your income, your accomplishments. Yes, everything. Put it all into the loss column. Count it as rubbish. That doesn't mean you can't be thankful for the advantages you have been provided, but they are of no salvific benefit or they do not benefit your salvation. Some time ago, I read the biography of Eric Liddell. You know, this man won the men's 400-meter race in the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. You know, in his day, he was the fastest man on earth. He was far superior to any competitor, and he never lost a race for many a year. He set a world record that, if I remember rightly, was held for over 20 years. But here's why I tell the story. At the height of his career, when he was a virtual rock star in his native Scotland, he announced he was leaving it all to go into missionary work in China. It's roughly equivalent to Wayne Gretzky when breaking every record, leaves the NHL and becomes a missionary. See, why did Liddell do that? 
It's because he had already put all his successes into his loss column. They meant nothing. Christ meant all. And here, notice what Paul says. Rename your loss column. Don't call it a loss column anymore. Call it complete rubbish. You know, someone might object here and say, wait a minute. Not everything is rubbish. I mean, godly parents, good Christian training. That's not rubbish. Neither is my education. But listen, none of that saves. Only Christ does. John Piper put it this way. Who has ever been to the Grand Canyon for the first time and his first thought is, I'm overwhelmed with how great I am. Now, when we stand before something that is sublime, we lose ourselves in gazing at something that is ultimately valuable. See, I know this. Those infatuated with themselves and their accomplishments have never stood before the Grand Canyon that is the glory of God. That's why Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. When the persecutors in Philippi want to take away your property, or when the courts of Caesar threaten Paul's life, well, these things are rubbish. As the hymn writer has said, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, and that includes the flesh. Put no confidence there. John, a great message. I got to ask you about this whole rubbish thing. You know, there's a lot of things that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about family. He's talking about things that are really important to us. And all of a sudden we refer to them as rubbish. That's a comparative statement, isn't it? Or what is it? What's Paul trying to say? Yeah, I think Paul is very particular about how he uses that. He wants to say in relationship to your salvation. He's not saying that our accomplishments don't get us a better job or take care of our families in a better fashion than we might without them. I mean, those are all good things, but Paul is relating this very specifically to our relationship with God and getting our sins forgiven. There is, in fact, level ground before the cross. The most educated among us and the least educated are alike accepted before God on the basis of Christ's work and not on their own. And that's why sometimes people with great accomplishments find this difficult, but it is necessary for us to grasp it. Well, it's amazing how relevant this passage is for us today. Throughout our Christian life, we must learn this lifelong lesson to overcome fleshly desires and our very human tendency to elevate our own achievements. Even the way we talk about our own salvation can be an indication of this. I hope that today's message has impacted your faith journey. It certainly has been a challenging one to hear. Please join us again tomorrow as we continue in week four of our series in the book of Philippians. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What a time in history. In one sense, who would have imagined? In another, the Bible suggests that we should expect such times. In either respect, it is certainly a reminder of those things that matter most. Our love for God, our love for family, and the calling each of us has as children of God to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, and we're so grateful that as a result of so many people across the country who give so generously that this mission continues. So thank you. Your commitment to giving allows this Bible teaching ministry to sustain its programming every day. So coast to coast, to each of you, we express our gratitude and please be assured every gift of any amount is so appreciated. To know more about the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
and all the Bible teaching resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.